The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm here with a recurring guest, my friend, Achuta Baba Prabhu. Thank you so much for joining me, Prabhu. How are you doing today? All right, Krishna. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. It's like Saturday Night Live. You get like little tokens or awards if you're a repeat guest. That's what right, I right. The last episode you were on was episode 37, and I think we're now in the 90. Maybe when this one comes out, we'll be like 97 or something like that. But uh, getting to the hundred hundred mark, and um, so glad to come and talk with you. So last time for our listeners, uh, Ajuta Bhava Prabhu came on and talked about his journey in spirituality, which started uh, in Christianity, and then he uh, got into other things and ultimately came uh, to where he is now in Bhakti. But uh, we didn't hear so much about um, his his profession and his background in Western astrology, which is super interesting. He has an amazing YouTube page, which has like 40,000 subscribers. He ha- has many students. He has a lot of online content that he puts a lot of energy, a lot of focus into. So I just want to hear about that and also just like different um, different aspects of astrology that uh, devotees – or different topics rega- regarding astrology that devotees can kind of um, gain inspiration and, and maybe questions can be answered uh, about astrology. So let's start there. Prabhu, how did you get in touch with uh, astrology? Like, how did you even break into that? Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, I just want to say congrats on coming up on your 100th episode. Thank um, you. So many good episodes you got, you, that you've done and that I've just had a ple- pleasure to watch over time. And yeah, it's really fun so to be back. Um. Well, I mean, last time that we talked, we, you know, we were basically outlining a, kind of a, a, a long, strange journey that brought me to Bhakti Yoga. And, and a, a big portion of that was me talking about how it was a very long period of my life spent with psychedelic plant medicine from South and Central America mm-hmm. that sort of brought me to yoga and astrology and then kind of step by step as I stepped away from that world of psychedelics, I ended up finding bhakti. And uh, so we talked a lot about that. And it's from that same, you know, that same journey that astrology emerged. It was, you know, I would say I've always had, um, I've always been fascinated and had a like awe and reverence kind of relationship for with the sky, you know, with the planets and right. stars. And it's always just captured my imagination. And I've liked sci-fi and, you know, stuff like that. But, um, it was probably psychedelic experiences in the Amazon drinking ayahuasca that, um, you know, made me, well, it, it just, first of all, like the, those experiences delivered a lot of really, um, I think they, they, for many people, they deliver a lot of timeless, but very basic spiritual insights, like that, that you're not your body, that you have a spirit soul, that there is, um, that reality is multidimensional and a lot more, you know, it's a lot more than just the material concerns that we have here as earthly citizens. It just, it puts you, it, it really broadens your mind. Basically, that's what I think most people take away from healthy psychedelic experiences, maybe with some traditional religious background, like I, I had with the people that I worked with in the Amazon. Um, and in those experiences, one of the things that I felt, you know, 
very real in a very real way was the reality of what in our tradition i think we would just call the demigods and the demigods especially in the planets and um in for example i had a ceremony early on where i was having the moon was coming in into the ceremonial mesa and um you know and i was laying on the floor and i had i had accidentally knocked over my cup of water but you're in these ceremonies you're in kind of a trance state and my arm was in the water so it's kind of like you know dreaming where the water was having this influence on my inner state and so was the moon but i wasn't really um totally conscious of it and there was just a mandala of you know like dreamlike visions of of lo lunar symbolism mothers ocean goddesses women fertility and it was in that moment that i had this remembering you know from being a kid and looking like uh in particular at the doctor's office in the waiting room there would be like teen magazine with your horoscope you know and i, and I was a preacher's kid so it was it was off limits you know what i mean <laughs> But I would pick it up and I would like look and I'm like, oh, I'm, I figured out because you can look at your birthday and like figure out which one you are. My sun sign was cancer, which is the, the moon children of the zodiac. So I had this remembering in the ceremony during this lunar themed kind of visionary sequence that I was like a child. I was a, I was a cancer and it wasn't just a it wasn't just some kind of weird, um, you know, like associative memory. It it felt like. No, there's something to this. There's something to astrology. The gods somehow preside over the karma of our lives. Um, there's some kind of celestial system here. And it was just a really deep knowing. And it led in time to starting to study astrology. And as I studied it, I just got really, really passionate about it. I was still pretty immersed in psychedelics. Uh, eventually, you know, the, uh, you know, I kind of set aside the psychedelic path for reasons we talked about in the last episode Yeah, and was really starting to focus on yoga a lot more. I'd met my wife and we were, we had started a yoga studio, uh, in right outside of DC. And I was, I had launched a full-time astrology practice and, um, so, and that, there's a lot to all of that, but I think that, you know. I started uh, yoga and astrology started becoming my focus until some years later, I would eventually find bhakti and bhakti would become even more like my full. Okay. This is really where I found my, my focus on the yoga path now is, is devotional service and this lineage and so forth. And, you know, but at that time when I found bhakti, I had been a full-time practicing Western astrologer for seven years so in a you know client base already built up students classes i mean you know my my career was totally in full swing so it was a really interesting point to enter into my interest in astrology or to enter into my interest of into bhakti because i already had established a really deep commitment to a spiritual path of, of astrology i would call it a spiritual path in astrology and you know i think that was the initial like one of the initial reasons that we thought this talk might be interesting is because sometimes like one of the initial things that I, when I was reading some of the early purports and so forth, I was like, Oh, there's some, there's some strong statements here about whether or not devotees should be doing astrology, you know? So what right. am I to do? Because I'm a full-time astrologer, you know? Right. So, right. Yeah. So, so I guess, I guess maybe we can start where, um, is astrology, like in, when you're talking about those purports and things like, so what was your impression is astrology yeah. okay for devotees in your point of view when you were reading those things and then until now be, you know coming through those years and and kind of uh letting it uh settle and and things like that 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote down a bunch of notes because this is something that I'm I'm just super passionate about. So I hope that everyone listening will find some of this useful because maybe my process of going through this as someone who's coming to Bhakti, falling in love with Bhakti, finding my guru, all of this, but also I'm neck deep in a 24-7 astrology practice. And so what do you, you know, what do you do about that? Because my initial impression, since you asked, was um pessimistic, negative, maybe even downright hostile to astrology, you know, yeah. like in in purports and in the mood, like when I and I'm not trying to be um critical of anyone, but you know, when I meet people at the temple or you know, just starting to meet people and tell them what I did. I could just, you could just feel it like, oh, I'm not sure that that's okay. Like, you know, like yeah. I'm not sure that that's legit. And other people, no, no big deal at all. No one, but there was definitely like, oh, I can feel that this is like a thing. And I had read in some of the purports. I did have teachers like that were like, I don't know, like gatekeepers for me, helping me get to know Bhakti. And this was something I was able to discuss with them like right away. You know what I mean? So I had some teachers that, you know, really helped me to feel like I was, I was okay. And being what I am as a professional, being an astrologer, and that there was going to be a way of dovetailing how I earn a living and how I support my family and so forth with, you know, with, with Bhakti, but also it really forced me. um, It's, it's really funny that at the time timing that it happened, because about halfway through my career if i look at the history of my career it was about halfway through and prior to encountering bhakti that i was starting to look at like okay i knew how to practice astrology in the western mode but i didn't really understand what are the underlying spiritual principles behind this in modern astrology um it's only been very recently in the past 30 years or so that modern astrologers have had access to the uh what are what's broadly called the hellenistic source texts which means the earliest texts of the western tradition which it because we haven't had those texts in many ways we haven't had access to the underlying metaphysics or spiritual philosophy that the earliest astrologers espoused, right? So it's it's kind of like, well, why are we doing this? In modern astrology in the West, a lot of it is character profiling and psychological analysis. And, you know, it's like it's it was wed in the early, the turn of the last century and, and so forth. It was wed to the blooming field of depth psychology, people like Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, and looking at the... Um, looking at behaviors in the human psyche through the lens of gods and goddesses and, and from Greek mythology and... And so forth and the language of astrology sort of lent itself to this kind of esoteric psychology that was emerging but um it it looks modern western astrology in that regard is very different from indian astrology and it's very different from classical greek or hellenistic astrology which is much more like um advanced karmic analytics you know it's like it's very predictively specific uh traditional indian astrology traditional ancient western astrology and so I was just getting exposed to like traditional ancient Western astrology. And as I was getting exposed to it, I was also getting exposed to the underlying spiritual roots of the tradition. And so sort of recognizing that in, in my humble opinion, the modern tradition has sort of strayed from its God-centered ancient roots. 
And that actually was starting to happen for me as a student of Western astrology just a year or two prior to finding Bhakti. So it was really kind of beautiful because when I found Bhakti, I was at a point where I was just starting to focus a lot of my work on the spiritual foundations of ancient Western astrology, the ancient philosophy of the mystics who practice this and the God-centered consciousness that they espoused. And then I find Bhakti and it's like, you know, well, in a, in a sense, it was, it was like everything was just becoming more God-centered, both my astrology practice and, um, you know, and obviously my spiritual life. So that was kind of the, that was kind of what brought it all together. And then it was like, okay, well, I have to, um, I really need to discover what, because I'm practicing ancient Western astrology. So I need to discover what does ancient Western astrology at its roots have in common with bhakti and that became like a huge project for me and something i'm still i still spend a lot of time researching wow very interesting so what are let's 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 get into what your you know your research has kind of come to what right. is the what are the similarities or what are what have you found i'm going to read you guys some quotes from ancient astrological manuscripts from the hellenistic era so that you can actually feel it cuz it's kind of cool okay I've got a bunch of them. So, and then I'm going to compare it to an ancient Indian text so you can see how similar they are actually. Um, and then we can, we'll also talk later about the similarities and differences between Eastern and Western astrology. I think that might be interesting, but Definitely. so this is from the earliest known text that we have uh, from the early Roman empire from an astronomer slash astrologer named Marcus Manilius. He was a poet and this is what he wrote about the purpose of astrology he says, now is heaven the readier to favor those who search out its secrets, eager to display through a poet's song the riches of the sky. It is my delight to traverse the very air and spend my life touring the boundless skies, learning the constellations and the contrary motions of the planets. But this knowledge alone is not enough. A more fervent delight is it to know thoroughly the very heart of the mighty sky to mark how it controls the birth of all living beings through its signs and to tell thereof in verse with Apollo tuning my song. Wow. So that's a simple quote where you can see, here's this guy saying like, there's this whole celestial science. It's amazing. And you actually need to know the intelligence that's at the center of it in order right. to actually do astrology. That's one of my favorites, but I've got some others. Here's, um, this one is a Persian astrologer named Abu, um, named Masha Allah. And he writes this, and you have to remember that a lot of us early astrologers were Christians, some were Muslims, um, some were Jews. So you have right. a, a range of different monotheistic traditions that practiced right. astrology in the ancient world, obviously Indian uh, astrologers as well. Right. For under the testimony of him who built this inestimable construction of the world and those things had in it both here and above, out of his kindness alone, the shining orbs of the stars and the wandering retreat of the moon for certain comforts of humankind and for educating or rather training the ignorance of men. So it's very theistic. A, yeah, it's very theistic. And in, in, in one of the things that he, Masha Allah goes on to say is that when you study this, you're affirming the control that God has over your life. And that's like one of the main focuses of the, the astrologer is to 
help people understand the course of their karma, which I think is a very easily translatable term. Yeah. They, they might say fate, but fate really means the outcomes of your life. The gods control it and God controls the gods. So it's the same exact sort of structure. And that the, 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 un, the only reason that you would really do this as a practitioner, and there's difference between people who study astrology and people who go to an astrologer. But if you're in a, a student of astrology, the reason that you do this is to draw your mind into more of an understanding of God's intelligence and work in creation. And that's a part of submitting your life to God. Right, right. So here's a Jewish astrologer, also from the medieval era, named Ibn Ezra. And he says something really similar. And I just found like, I mean, literally dozens of these. They're, you know, they're all over. Right. He says the beginning, this is the very beginning of his textbook on astrology called The Beginning of Wisdom. He says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, for it is the instruction. For when a man does not follow his eyes and heart to fulfill his worldly desire, then wisdom will rest in him. So talking about getting rid of your material desires. Then he says, moreover, the fear of God will protect him from the laws and ordinances of the heavens all the days of his life. So here's the second part that says, also, if you don't want to be subjected to the impersonal laws of karma, it's implied that they're impersonal unless you know God personally. Wow. Isn't that so, so in line with our tradition, really? It is, yes. And then he says, um, when his soul separates from his body, he will be endowed with eternity. So if you study, it's like, for this is, and this is for practitioners, people who are studying, here he's saying, and when he says the fear of God, he's not meaning it like a, um, we might call it like an awe and reverence mood, maybe, that's fair. But he's talking really about just not being proud, you know, just, just submitting our lives to God and being like, God is controlling all things. And by studying that, relinquishing my material desires, surrendering my life and my fate to God, then, you know, that's, how, that's part of the path to eternity. And in this sense, you would think, well, it's really weird. Like, why would someone want to study fate or karma, uh, you know, as a way of surrendering? But really what they're saying is that the more you study this and the more that you see the way that God controls all things through the workings of the planets and so forth, the more impetus there is to surrender because you realize that it's not in your hands. And right. so that's, that's the benefit to the practitioner. Right. And it's you don't have any you don't have any you're just more and more realizing day by day that you actually don't have any control. That's over. right. Yeah, it's very and not that you don't have choice, but that, you know, I, it's like man, what's the, the phrase man proposes God disposes. So it's like, yeah, you have this slice of free will, but that ultimately not a blade of grass moves without the supreme. And, and that's kind of the mood that you feel for all of these ancient astrologers. Here's one. I'm going to read you a few. Now, these come, there's a lot of different philosophical traditions in the ancient world in the West that utilized astrology. It's not just like there was one school. Mm -hmm. You have Platonists, you have Aristotelians, you have Neoplatonists in the medieval era, you have Hermeticists, you have uh, Pythagoreans, you have Orphics, you have different sects of Egyptian mysticism. So there's lots of different schools that embrace astrology there's stoics in the roman empire wow this is um so there's different moods and not all of them i don't think match necessarily with 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 bhakti exactly yeah. but i would say the one thing that all of them do have in common is god-centeredness 
that's it's very clear from one tradition to the next that they all put God at the center in one way or another. Valens, mm -hmm. Vettius Valens, a Roman, uh, Roman Empire astrologer says this. He said, for God in his desire that man should foreknow the future brought this science into the world, a science through which anyone can know his fate in order to bear the good with great contentment and the bad with great steadfastness. Accordingly, then, the initiates of this art, those wishing to have knowledge of the future, will be helped because they will not be burdened with vain hope. They will not expend grievous midnight oil, will not love for impossible things, nor in a like manner will they be carried away by their eagerness to attain what they may expect because of some momentary good fortune. And he goes on to say, those engaged in prediction of the future and the truth, having acquired a soul that is free and not enslaved, do not think highly of fortune. Now, fortuna, that word, is basically the Western equivalent of karmic stuff. It's this worldly, the, the worldly hamster wheel. Right. So he's saying those who do this are doing this because they're interested in not having a soul that's enslaved to the wheel of karma. They are not, they are not afraid of death. And they live their lives undaunted by disturbances because they train their soul to be confident. And the basic translation of that in English would basically mean that they train their soul to understand itself as something beyond this material world. Right. right. So, and then you got an, here's Firmicus Maternus, another uh, Roman um, astrologer. He says, this study will most successfully bring us to the point where our souls will despise everything which is considered evil or good in human affairs. And he goes on to say, by recollection of its divine nature, our souls have formed themselves to withstand these things. So, yeah. So you can feel that, that when I was, first of all, I was, again, I was discovering these texts and passages about a year before Bhakti came into my life. And, and you started to see like, okay, there is a theme yeah. here. Yes, yes. And it was it was my whole life really becoming more God-centered. First my astrology, but then very quickly Bhakti came in and it was like, okay, well, here we go, you know. Right. So, you know, <laughs> here's I'm gonna read you just a couple more sure, um, to give sure. you the mood. So this is one of my favorites of all time. This is from Firmus Firmicus Maternus, and it's a letter to the student of astrology that says what sort of life and practices astrologers ought to have. Now you who venture to read these instructional textbooks, when you have received all the knowledge of divinity and steeped and initiated in the secrets of divine nature, you will come to know the system of this sacred work. Shape yourself in the image and likeness of divinity so that you may always be adorned with the commendation of goodness. For it behooves him who daily speaks of the gods or with the gods to shape and instruct his mind so that he always may approach the subject with the intimation of imitation of divinity. He goes on for pages talking about how to cultivate a virtuous spiritual life. But in the end, he says this, he says, therefore be pure and chaste. And if you have separated yourself from nefarious actions, which are wont to destroy your mind. And if a right vow of living has freed you from hatred and evil deeds, if you keep yourself purged of evil and mindful of the divine seed within you, enter upon this work and commit to memory the following textbooks, so that divinity may bequeath the science to you and draw near to your mind with a hidden prophetic majesty, so that having attained the true knowledge of divinity, 
and defining the fates of men and explaining the course of life, you may be instructed not so much by the things you have read in textbooks, but so that more may be conferred upon you by the divinity of your mind than by the mastery of what you have read. Mm. So he's saying also essentially that unless you live a spiritual life, the textbooks aren't going to deliver to you a, a good way of actually doing astrology for other people because you're in service to God. And unless you're growing closer to God, God won't, God won't be in the work that you're doing. And that's what really makes the difference, not just what's in these textbooks. Mm. So I think what, what I just, one of the reasons I wanted to read all of those <clears throat> is because see how closely this reads to a Vedic textbook. So this is one of, this is a good, a good book for anyone by Ernst Wilhelm called the Graha Sutras. I don't know if you've ever seen this book before. No, I haven't. Well, this is a, um, from, I want to say that this is, um, here, here in the introduction, he says, this text, Graha Sutras, is largely a commentary on the sutras, uh, on the sutras on the planets from Brihat Parashara Hora Shastra, which is sometimes called like the Hindu Bible of astrology. Mm. And I have a copy of that in my, um, in my uh, bookshelf as well. But this is the first um, shloka or sutra, maybe. <clears throat> the supreme unborn spirit has many descents. Janardhan, in the form of the grahas, rewards the fruit of the karma of the living beings. And then Wilhelm says, in this sutra, Brihat Parashara Hora Shastra tells us that the grahas, that's the planets, are nothing but aspects of God, and that the purpose of these aspects of God is to bestow the result of man's and other creatures' actions. The term used to signify God and is taking the form of the grahas is Janardana, the one who agitates man, causing fear and worry. No doubt, ill-disposed grahas give us much to fear and worry. However, we should remember that the grahas themselves are aspects of God, and thus we should not fear them irrationally any more than we should fear God. Nor should we fear that which they bestow, <clears throat> excuse me, any more than we should fear that which God bestows upon us. Yet, since the fruits of our actions are often undesirable, we may often find ourselves fearing Janardana and the Grahas. So the next sutra tells us the benefits of the Grahas so that we may understand that they are here to help us and that we indeed have no need to fear. And he goes on to basically say, look, when you accept the planets as the uh, emissaries of God delivering your, delivering your karma, and you choose to see God in the results of your life, God, you'll draw closer to God. Mm. And ultimately, that's the approach to astrology that he advocates as a Vedic astrologer. Now, he's writing in the modern era, but he's commenting on one of the oldest Vedic texts, right? So, and as far as I've understood, talking to some of my colleagues in the, you know, the Vedic astrology world, the mood is really similar that, um, that the, the reason that we do astrology is because you have basically everyone's walking through life, probably assuming that they have a lot more control over everything than they do. So the initial benefit is you're not in control. God is. And that's actually understanding that astrology helps you to actually see that and understand that. And if you can accept that, it's a huge relief. And so that's one potential benefit. And we'll talk later about the potential pitfalls because I think there are many. And that's probably also why Srila Prabhupada 
made a, a point a number of times to say, you know, you don't need astrology. Mm -hmm. But the, just to start with the pros, the, 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 the benefit here is that if you study, if you study karma, then the reality of karma, the reality of the gods, the reality of God overseeing the outcomes of your life becomes enhanced. And the natural response is maybe you fight against that a little bit, but you're just going to be banging your head on the wall or you start the surrender process. And it's, you know, it's slow. It's maybe, maybe slow, but for, for many people, astrology does that. It helps them see this higher power that's present in their life. When you say, when you say that, that kind of conception of God is controlling, everything becomes enhanced. Can you give an example of that? Sure. So like, let's just say, I mean, this is just like an, an average day in my practice. So maybe it was like a couple of weeks ago, I'd done a reading for a woman over the summer. She had just started seeing someone and she had Jupiter, a planet that can be very fertile when it moves into a water sign, moving not only into a water sign, but into her fifth house, which in ancient Western astrology can indicate pregnancy. She was just elated about this romance. And I said, well, you know, just... Make sure that if you do, if you guys don't want to have a baby, that you're careful this summer because these dates, you know, could right. be a very fertile period. There's no way we're not even married. We just started dating, uh, you know, blah blah blah. It's like okay, you know, and I just, but I just say that to my clients. So of course, I heard from her a few weeks ago, and she she got pregnant. She right. got pregnant during that exact period. Now she's coming to me as a client, and this is the difference between clients and practitioners too. As a practitioner, um, you know, I have my own reasons for doing this, but when clients come to me, she's mostly anxious about future outcomes. So what did this do for her spiritually? I think she would probably consider herself a spiritual person. Um, but when she saw this event, she was like really, really blown away because it's okay. There's something else going on here. There's a celestial, uh, there are celestial karmic mechanics at work that this astrologer could see that I couldn't see that I thought, no way, you know, I'm in control. I'm not going to get pregnant, you right. know, but you did. And so when someone sees that, there's just this sense that at the very least, that my path is not just up to me, that there are higher intelligences, gods, and something ultimately divine of a divine nature that's guiding things along and that there's lessons in all of it. And am I seeing them? Am I learning them? What am I going to do? Because of course this romantic thing fizzled out. And so she's like, do I become a single mom? You know, she's now she's really in a pickle. So, it, but for a person like that, that simple prediction and then going through the process of seeing it play out brought her to us like a spiritual crisis and crossroads in her life. And that's wow. the kind of stuff that I see for people every day. Like they not, but they might not be chanting Hare Krishna. You know what I mean? Like they may not be having like a bhakti practice or maybe not at that stage in their life. Yeah. But I like to compare it to, okay, like there's a karma conda section of the Vedas, right? I mean, we talk about this. I've heard this explanation given. This is in fact, one of the explanations that my earliest teacher, uh, Hari Kirtan Prabhu, he told me this when we were first studying. It was like, you know, a yeah, book. there's this book in search I, of the I'm highest like, truth. reading it. It's so good. I just, yeah. He was on our staff at our yoga studio teaching yoga philosophy for years. And I didn't even know it. I know that he was a devotee. But so when I was telling him, like, what do I do? about? I'm talking to people every day about their total investment in karma. You know, yeah. like, isn't uh, this has got to be bad? Like, am I do I have to change careers? And he was like, no, you know, and, and he really helped me. One of the things that he said was, you know, he said, let's how did um, 
you know, how did Prabhupada and, and how have, uh, how's our lineage talked about why there is such a big section of the Vedas devoted to propitiating gods in order to get different kinds of outcomes materially. <laughs> and, you know, part of it is that everyone's in a different place. I mean, this was the explanation I'm just yes. parroting that I heard, but everyone's in a yes. different place. And some, if people are putting their trust in Vedic authority, that's a step in the right direction on, a, sure. on a progressive path, right? Yeah. So if people, the way that I've translated that to my work as an astrologer is that if I can do astrology in a way, in the, and, it's in, and I can talk more about how to do this later, but if I can do astrology in a way that helps people address their material anxieties while also pointing them toward the ultimate author of their karmic trajectory, then it's not completely uh, dissimilar from the existence of the Karmakanda section of the Vedas that look, you know, this woman had came to a spiritual crossroads in her life because of this pregnancy thing and the prediction about it. When she comes back for round two, we can go a little deeper and maybe by round three or round four, I can tell her about mantra meditation. You know what right. I mean? So that's kind of the, that's the way that I've tried to approach it is that there's people at different places and better that they're placing, they're asking about how the gods are presiding over their life than, than nothing at all. You know what I mean? So and that's kind the, of how my teachers help me with it anyway. Is it the prediction though? That is like kind of that wow factor that, okay, because you predicted that is that's the reason why she's like, okay, this there's something here. There's some like magic here happening or something. But that's if your right. prediction was, was not right or something. So I, I, I don't know if that's a question, but there's a, I guess there's a there's a part of it that that grabs people it, that's attractive to people. It's attractive to me. Right. I, I I will admit it that you can predict things about someone's life. Yeah. Well, and exactly. And I think it's it's really. I mean, and this is why you know in my classrooms the first weeks of my program are spent talking about whose power this is, where this power comes from. It comes from God, right. not from us. Um, we're students of the karmic mechanics of our of our solar system you know we're and it's a science it's there to be studied if approached with a humble spirit and an attitude of service it can help people understand different uh seasons in their life i don't predict concrete things right so most of the time i can tell a person what areas of their life are going to be active at what times and what kinds of events or what different types of events might be likely to occur at certain times. Yeah. So, but when, you know, but you, you're pretty close to the bullseye a lot, you know, like, wow. and sometimes you get things wrong too, but usually like I would say in an average astrological session, maybe I get a few things wrong, but probably I got more things right or close to right. And so a person will often and I'll also tell people, I'm not trying to be David Copperfield here and impress you with my predictive abilities. <laughs> I'm trying to read the karma as best I can. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I get it and sometimes I don't. So please let me know how things go. You know what I mean? You have to stay humble like that because it's really just like like weather forecasting. You, you don't want to like try to build your ego off from your predictive credibility as much as you want to be accurate and reputable and humble at once. That's an um, the two things. One, that's an amazing mood to have because if I had that kind of like superpower, so to say, then I would totally get puffed up about it and kind of like really use that to, you know, for my own 
I guess my own, um, you know, Im- improvement or like, or, or moving forward in life and things, but to have that mood that you're saying that humility is really, I think is super important. That's why maybe like you're endowed with this power to do that. Um, the second thing was that I'm interested to know what your student, like you have hundreds of students, like what is their background? It, it probably isn't all of them are like, Oh, I'm a total believer in God. Right. Right. I would say that like, you know, in the, in, so yeah, I mean like just so people can like, what is the day in a life of an astrologer? Like maybe I'll just start there and then zoom out. Yeah. That's bit. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so astrologers like these days are usually doing three things. You're doing readings for people, for clients, like chart readings. You're, you're teaching people how to do astrology. Some people do that. Some don't. And then you're usually creating content, like, because that drives readings and classes. So you're, you're content creating, like I content create every day on YouTube, Monday through Fridays, just like what's going on in the sky right now. And I try to pair it with spiritual insights, you know, not just what's going to happen, but how does this link to the cultivation of more virtue in our life or something like that? Um, And then I'm reading, I'm reading for clients and then so my afternoons, I'll like meet with clients. And then on the weekends, I teach classes. So I have astrology and it's, you know, it's these days it's all zoom. So it's people from all over. Yeah. So that's kind of the threefold stuff that I do. And then the, in terms of like my, the background of my students, it's very similar to the background or like demographics of people who go to yoga studios in the U S sort of spiritual, but not religious. I would say, um, looking for something sort of non-dual, maybe injured in some ways by a more punitive idea of God that they came up with in a church somewhere. Right. Looking for something that's a little bit more mystical and magical, a universe that's bigger than, um, you know, maybe again, some religious uh, fundamentalism they grew up with. There's a lot of that. And then, you know, people, I would say, the new age has unfortunately indoctrinated a lot of people with like monistic tendencies and like a lot of impersonalism. So it's all about oneness. I'm God, you're God, everything's God. Uh, I don't try to go at that head on. I found that that's uh, not usually productive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I instead what I do is I just present my views. I present the views of ancient astrology. I really talk about um, a chinta beta beta uh, tattva. Yeah. Um, because I think it's really mind blowing to have people understand that. And I actually brought this, this is the Hermetica Mm -hmm. and the Hermetica is an, um, an incorporation of lots of different, um, teachings from the Hermetic philosophical tradition. And this text describes the body of God as both one and many simultaneously as like variegated, but one at the exact same time. And these are some of the earliest astrologers. So I use this as a way of also teaching a chinta beta beta, you know, just what is this? How can the soul and God be one, but also distinct and different? And um, talking um, a lot about personal relationship. Like one of the things that's really amazing about the ancient world in general, when it comes to like the epistemology of divination is that there's it's not like post aristotelian in the west it's all about like um dissecting the body of the universe like it's a machine to be understood you know and its component parts and its mechanics and stuff like that 
But be prior to that, the divinatory mood was one that said that the cosmos is like an animal. It's like a being, which is not completely different from the way we look at the universal creation. Um, and that if you want to know truth about the cosmic being, the, the universe, that you approach it in the mood of a relationship. You ask questions of it like it's a being that will tell you things, that will speak to you and reveal things to you. Wow. And so the signs of, you know, the, the ancient study of signs and omens from Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, India, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, many places in the world was looking at the cosmos as a being and that knowledge or intelligence comes from the kind of relationship you're, you're able to forge so that inquiry is relational. You're, you know, it's not uh, about dissecting and objectifying the nature. It's relational. So that's another way that I try to Trojan horse a little bit of bhakti in. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> I love, oh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm super interested in omens. Yeah. Like I was, I was very interested. We, we did an astrology course in Mayapur with uh, Banu Swami. I think Banu Swami it was in uh you know when I was there and and we kind of went over it very briefly but that was fascinating some of the omens and things we can talk yeah. about like offline but I, yeah. I'd love to hear yeah. what you say about that yeah totally um, it's it's just, I think it's just a part of all of these ancient traditions that they believe that God spoke to us through signs and omens that that was a way that God spoke. Mm. Srila Prabhupada was actually really into that. Uh, in Achutananda Prabhu's memoir called Blazing Sadhus, he talks a lot about how Srila Prabhupada was very, um, <clears throat> very in tune with like these different omens that he had learned, I guess, from India and when he was a child or, or from his parents or whatever it was. But he was in his memoir, Achutananda Prabhu, you know, recounts specific ones that he that Prabhupada was kind of talking about. And to us right now or to, to a normal person be like, this is so um, superstitious, but right. it's actually a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, uh, I guess I guess what question I have now is that what do you feel about astrology being said that it's kind of like jnana yoga or it's just jnana yeah first of all i would say that like as someone who lives in the professional astrology industry in the west there's a ton of that like if i just had to describe i mean like just take it out of the like cultural context of india and bhakti and just like what yeah. is a what does someone who's a jnani look like a, a lot of it is i'm approaching divinity trying to uncover its truth with my mind and maybe there's some way in which through that approach of trying to like mental or philosophical approach to god there's certain illumination that happens right but um but it, it has that kind of impersonal vibe to it like I'm, I'm surrounded by lots of really brilliant people who love to think about god a lot mm. but who don't necessarily show that just like boom from the heart you know like i'm chanting the names of god i'm i'm it's it's a little so there's a different mood and i'd right. say that, that that it's it would be totally fair to say that the history of astrology there's a lot of the approach to god through mind and scholarship which i think um at times could be considered like yan you know like that so but i will also say that in the ancient you know in the in the ancient um, Greek religious imagination, and by Greek, I really mean like Greek speaking, like the Hellenistic world is Greek speaking, but it's not all ethnically Greek. Uh -huh. And in that world, um, 
the Greeks believed that truth and beauty were like inseparable. So if you're approaching God or the Supreme with the desire to understand truth, it can't help but also be aesthetic and beautiful and put you into states of reverie and like ec ecstasy, basically. So I think that sometimes the division is like fair, like, okay, if someone's just tripping out, obsessing, you know, mentally all the time, and there's not a mood of service and love and surrender in the heart, like if that's not a part of the process, then astrology could be a pretty heady, you know, and maybe the, maybe then the criticism is like fair. Um, but I also think that, I mean, this is something that I, I just in general sometimes have like an allergic reaction to in like in our ISKCON speak when people start slamming anyone who has an intellect. Like, oh, you, there's an intellect. You're, you're, you're really articulate. You must be a Gyani. You know, and it, it, you know, sometimes it's like, it's like, what are you just allergic to people with PhDs? You think people with PhDs don't have a heart? Like, what's your problem? You know, I, get, right, I have that reaction right. inside of me, you know, not you, that I have PhD, you ever, you had that experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tons. Like, That's yeah, I feel like the, the, the mood, um, the mood, not necessarily like it's just a, it's a, it's a feeling you get. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. you know, when you're in, when you're not, I mean, this is just for me as coming in as an outsider right? and talking to people about anything intellectual, you know, there's, you can see people's eyes glaze over. And then there's this, there's this look of like, you're in your head, not your heart. You know, this is kind of quiet judgment about things. And, right, right. you know, the way that I was raised, like my father has an exalted Venus in the house of the mind. Right. So my dad is like um, an example of someone where poetry, philosophy, scholarship, adoration, it all kind of blends together in, in my household growing up. And so I believe that just like the Swamis, uh, the, the, the Goswamis were, uh, you know, they were poets and erudite philosophers at once. And the history of Bhakti, as far as I can tell, is like, very literary there's people writing plays there's poetry there's dance there's but that means that there's a, a kind of cultural intelligence a, a artistic a worshipful sensibility and our wisdom tradition as well as our aesthetic tradition are really married together i guess my simple point is that you can really find that in in many many different tradition god-centered traditions around the world that if you look at the way aquinas or Augustine or Teresa of Avila in the Christian tradition are approaching the knowledge of God. They're approaching it as lovers. So I don't think the two are like just somehow mutually exclusive. Like you can approach the study of divine things, whether it's Ayurveda or astrology or acupuncture or some other spiritual science um, as someone who's also in, in love with the, with God's presence in it. And yeah. trying to serve others with the knowledge that you have while making sure that you still have, um, you know, active devotional processes going in your life. I think it's totally possible. So I kind of understand the criticism. And I think the Greeks thought that beauty and truth were inseparable and that the more that you, your mind drew closer to God, the more it would naturally put you into worshipful states. Mm. I guess what would someone, what would a reason be not to, do astrology or be, or, you know, get interested in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's actually funny because sometimes students will email me prior to taking my course or even sometimes in the midst of my course. And they'll be like, I'm starting to obsess 
about the future. I'm starting uh, to get really worried or like afraid about the future. Right. And I always tell people like, if astrology is increasing fear and anxiety, don't do it. <laughs> far, you know, like far better to chant. You know what I mean? Like far right. better in our tradition. You know, I would say like chanting Hare Krishna over studying astrology, obviously. But yeah. my point is that like in terms of, you know, some of us have a, like a dharma or a an inborn calling to do certain things. Like if it's going to be astrology or whatever, then, um, you know, is it a service? And if, if it's increasing anxiety, if it's increasing attachment to or entanglement to karmic things, and I'm not saying it has to be perfect. Like I study astrology uh, at 24 seven in my life is astrology's going like a ticker. And there's some days where I'm anxious about it, but you know, progressively my over time, like the reasons that I'm doing this have become clearer. The important aspect of God consciousness at the center of what I'm doing has become more fun, you know, more firm. And I don't like, I barely look at my own chart. Like I'd say maybe a couple times a year, I look at my own chart anymore. Mm. And, and that's what I tell my students. Our goal should be like in the beginning, you want to study your own chart a lot because it's part of the process of learning on yeah. spiritual and intellectual levels. But over time, like the good astrologers, really, you'll notice this uh, uh, high level astrologers in both India and here, like they become more and more detached from the personal cares about their chart. That's a good sign. And if you're a student of astrology and that's not occurring, and in, in fact, it's making things worse, then I would say it's not for you, you know, because you have to have the constitution to be doing what you're, what you're doing without, it'd be kind of like saying like, okay, people say um, studying, okay, it'd be like saying studying Ayurveda means, it means if you do it, then you'll be obsessed with the material conception of life because you're treating the body. Right. Right. Well, no, you can have you can have an increased awareness of health in the body and the mechanics of the body and physical medicine and so forth. Um, and your in awareness of that stuff might be increased, but it doesn't mean that your attachment to the material conception of life is increased. So similarly, like I think if you can study astrology and your awareness of the reality of karma might increase, but that doesn't mean your attachment to karmic things is increasing. Regarding obsession, um, if you are looking at daily the what's going on in the sky, how does looking at that affect your actions? Or um, I guess it doesn't have to do with obsession. In in some ways, it does because you are. I don't know. Are you basing your actions based upon what the what's going on in the sky? I'm so glad you asked me that. <laughs> because I'm very I fascinated. Have... I'm very fascinated because like the practical application of being a full-time astrologer, I'm just like want to get in your head about what you're like, are you seeing something that I'm not seeing? <laughs> right, right. Like you are. Well, obviously yeah, you I mean, are. But I mean, it would be kind of like you know, like a weatherman sees things that we don't see, even though right. we all see it. You know what I mean? Like right, so, right. Like so I'm going to pull, I pulled up some verses that I actually also use in my programs, kind of covertly sneaking some Sri Ishupanishad in there. Um, <laughs> so this, and I'm, you know, these, well, of course, probably a lot of people listening do, but I'm going to call upon this mantra. Sit six, a person who sees everything in relation to the Supreme Lord and sees all entities as his parts and parcels and who sees the Supreme Lord within everything, ne never hates anything nor any being. So 
the way that I translate that or take that and apply it to my daily astrological life is like this. So in ancient Platonic thinking in the West, and I have to do everything through the Western philosophical modality because that's how I've been trained, right? So in Platonism, the world of forms that we're watching passing by, souls incarnated into bodies and plants and animals and and this world was called the sublunary sphere, the world of coming to be and passing away. So everything here is transient and impermanent, and it's very much like our, our philosophy in, in Platonic thinking. Um, so in the allegory of the cave, you, do, do you remember that? I'm sure you probably remember the allegory of the cave from Plato. I feel like everyone had to read that at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the allegory of the cave, this world of forms is compared to shadows flickering on a wall. And the prisoners are chained and they can only see the shadows. They can't see the fire that's casting the light to create the shadows, right? And so first thing that happens is the prisoner gets out of his bondage and he can go and like he can see the fire. And it's like, okay, the fire is casting these shadows. So now he has an understanding about the source of those shadows. Then eventually he actually crawls out of the cave and goes out into the light of the sun in the real world and sees like real forms. So Plato said that in order to understand God or to move into this, he also, by the way, conceptualized enlightenment as love of God. Um, but that's that's it's slightly different in Platonic thinking. But but at any rate, so progressively we move from seeing the the changes and the events and the fluctuations of experience in this world as the only thing that's real. You know what I mean? It's like my bank account, my body, my this is, and that's all that's real. That's the prisoners seeing the shadows. Then eventually they start to inquire, why am I here? What is this? Is this real? What is real? And so the philosophical path or spiritual path continues. And then they start to understand, no, actually all of these forms in the world are like these pre-made archetypal um, patterns. It's like a kaleidoscope filled with patterns. And you start to understand the nature of the patterns. And then you go from understanding the patterns to understanding the source of the patterns. So in, in, Ancient astrology, the planets, the gods, and the way that they preside over creation and the movement of all of these shadows is due to the fact that they are archetypal in nature. So like the moon and Venus and Jupiter and Saturn, all the planets that we look at, they're gods, but they're, they're gods presiding over like a, a huge range of different energies and topics. Like that's why the moon can rule mothers can rule the home, can rule the breasts, can rule the reproductive organs, but it could also rule things like rivers or waters or streams. Or So the planets preside over like these range of different things. And as you are understanding them uh, in through astrology, what you're starting to do is in your everyday life, when stuff happens, because you're tracking the movements of the planets, like let's say, for example, this week, you know, Mars is opposite Uranus. And in the, in the sky right now, in Western astrology, that tends to be very combative, combustible energy. So let's say that this week we see something in the news that matches that. It, it's, that's there all the time, right? But like, let's yeah. just say there's a particularly acute event. Like I think the jury's about to decide in the case of that young man. You, you know the story about the, the young man from Kenosha, Wisconsin, who shot some people at a protest or something like that in his, you know, right. so let's just say that violent, eru- you know, an eruption of violent protest occurs because he's acquitted or whatever. Right. So the astrologer 
rather than just seeing that event, sees the gods. They're like, oh, that is just the play of the gods. That, those are just the patterns playing out. Or let's say more personally, let's say on any given day, the moon is traveling through an opposition with Mars. You're out with a friend for dinner. You get into a heated debate about something. The astrologer, even though they may still get in the heated debate, you know, the knowledge of astrology doesn't necessarily keep you from getting in that heated debate. Right. But in hindsight, in reflectiveness, in let's say your prayer life or, you know, contemplation, you know, whatever you're journaling or something, as an astrologer, you look and you go, oh, look at that. Mars was opposing the moon at the time I got in that argument. So what you're doing is you're training yourself to go from being invested in the shadows in the wall to starting to see that these shadows are patterns that we call gods or archetypes. And progressively, the more that you live your life, this is the idea of the ancient Platonic astrologers, the more that you live your life with that kind of reflective capacity to see the experiences of life as the, the just the workings of these patterns, these gods and these different um, forces and so forth, that you start to, um, first of all, you start to see God in everything because there's no experience now that you're seeing that isn't, that isn't placed within this uh, divine intelligence of the cosmos that isn't mirrored in the sky, right? And so all of a sudden you're like, that argument with my friend was God, right? That was God's hand. We were also, remember the name of the planets in Indian astrology, grahas, which means grabbers. When we're unconscious, invested in the shadows, we become the playthings of the gods. We become like their puppets. Mm. Whereas the reflective life of the philosopher allows us to know and understand these movements and see the pattern coming through and then be like, nah, no thanks, right? And because then you have more participatory space, ideally. And a lot wait, wait, of times- when you said When you said no thanks- you're saying that you're not participating, you're not going to participate in the shadows that you're seeing. Right. Like, let's say, ideally, and I just, and I was kind of joking earlier that you may not be able to like knock it in the argument over dinner, right? right? But right. let's say that you're out for dinner and you know, moon and Mars is coming through. At the very least, astrologers would say that that should al allow you to curb your anger mm. in the beginning. But if you're also pairing it with meditation, et cetera, et cetera, then you should be able to maintain peaceful, uh, the way a devotee would act, right? That our, our sadhana and our, um, our awareness of these dynamics allows us to stay centered in graciousness or better virtue, something more sattvic, basically. Are you, are you actually giving, uh, the, are you actually reading the past few days has been a combative time? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's crazy. Cause, cause a little personal thing, but me and my wife has have really been kind of at, you know, kind of like lately mm -hmm. in the past few days. Yeah. That's crazy that yeah, you say because, that. <laughs> yeah, because, well, cause right now we're coming into an eclipse. Eclipses tend to stir up a lot of passion and, yeah. um, and there's just some, there's some really intense Mars aspects happening right now. And when this is the Western version, I'm sure there's a counterpart right now in like Jotish or, you know, sure. But, sure. Yeah. So the idea would be that if you train yourself to see your life and your experiences as the, the play of the gods, right? Then what you're doing is you're slowly divesting yourself right. of your investment in this material stuff. And now it's not enough to just divest yourself. We also need to invest ourselves in Krishna, right? To actually invest our hearts in something else. But at the very least, an astrologer who is also committed to bhakti 
can be using astrology to see God's work in, in everything and to appreciate it, to learn lessons from it. This is why, I mean, even in the Bhakti tradition, Srila Prabhupada says very clearly in a number of places that, you know, people who surrender their lives to Krishna have Krishna intervening more personally in yeah. the outcomes of their karma. That's yeah. not unique to Srila Prabhupada or to us Vaishnavs. That's very common in the West as well. Jews say the same thing. It, you know, Muslims say the same thing. Wow. Christians at times say the same thing. You have people in many different traditions saying, look, if you are using this as a way of drawing closer to God, then there's a way in which, as I read in that quote earlier, that you're not you're not drawn into the impersonal grinding gears of the of the universe. And it might be as simple as, look, moon is opposing Mars. I'm getting into an argument, but I'm going to take it down from level 10, you know, to <laughs> level five, you know, and maybe it's that simple. I, I, I find that so fascinating because sometimes I go, you know, through life just, um, you know, there's, 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 there's Krishna conscious points. And then in between, there's like points of not being Krishna conscious or conscious of anything higher. Like if I'm like really deep in like um, a work issue or something that I might be enjoying, some kind of sense of gratification or something like that, then there's nothing there. But it from what you're saying is that as an astrologer or someone, a student of astrology, you're constantly seeing the gods or the power, higher power, higher intelligence, whatever you want to call it, at work at every moment. Well, I mean, I, I think I, ideally, it, it it's not at every moment, right? I mean, I do the same thing. I drift off into all sorts of la-la lands. But I, I would say that it, you know, we have our devotional life where we feel really connected. And then there's going to be lots of times where our karma somehow necessitates that we're just still dragging through the mud. Right. So at least we can see that mud as as God's clay. You know what I mean? Like, at least we can, at least we can, I mean, I think that's the benefit of astrology is that a person who sees everything in relation to the Supreme Lord, well, astrology, if we're using it in the spirit of bhakti, I think would allow someone to see the events as the gods and knowing that the gods are related to Krishna, just like Plato says, uh, you know, and the Platonic astrologers said, you move from the shadows to seeing that these are actually these forms that are, you know, higher forms uh, patterns and then you move from the patterns to the, to the source of the patterns and so ideally astrology does that but also the the other verse that comes to mind and i know that lots of people like to capitalize on this verse for all sorts of evil deeds but only one who can learn the process of nescience and that of transcendental knowledge side by side can transcend the influence of repeated birth and death and enjoy the full blessings of immortality that's mantra 11 from sri Shupanishad. and I've always, as an astrologer, I've always found that refreshing, maybe just because I, I feel cursed at times to be an astrologer, honestly, you know, it's like, really? I'm just, it's like I'm in karmic, can, you know, I talk to people all day about like their karmic concerns. So sometimes it does feel a bit like that, but right. it helps me to know that like, you know, it, 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 every day, if you're studying astrology, and this is why, you know, most astrologers that live real spiritual lives, like I have a friend who's a, know someone who's a Buddhist, who's an astrologer. It's the same thing. It's like you study astrology for a while and you get progressively less, the study itself and the observation of people going through their karma becomes the reinforcement of your spiritual life. Wow. And you're helping them gradually move along their path, but it's reinforcing your detachment from it all in a, in a pretty healthy way, ideally. And, um, 
but also I like to think that again, like what is the benefit of teaching all these people astrology who come to my school to learn about it? It's so that they can walk through life understanding the culture of nescience really clearly because the astrology, the, the real study of karma is ideally doing that for us. Is it difficult to like when for someone who wants to start to learn it, can you immediately pick up on things that you can see in the sky that you can kind of use practically? Or is it something where like you have to memorize this house, that house, this planet, that planet? Well, I would say that like even like even just an understanding of the basic planetary archetypes and, and starting to learn their combinations, um, starting to learn aspects in the sky and being able to track them, even tracking moon cycles can yeah. be really helpful. I mean, just right. knowing like things are ramping up and the full moon's coming, you know, um, <laughs> things are calming down and the dark moon's coming, whatever. I mean, yes, you know, I, so I do think that there's like a lot that can be learned really quickly. But when it comes to like sitting down and reading birth charts, you know, and being able to do more sophisticated things like talk about when someone's likely to change jobs or move or, you know, whatever, have health issues or something like that, or maybe a death in the family, like that stuff is probably more advanced and, you know, you need probably a couple of years. Sure. Some people are different. You know, some people it's like maybe they're just picking up where they left off. I've seen people who come in and it's like six, seven months and they're just they're just like, you know, really fast learners or whatever. But wow. yeah, I think a couple of years at least. Mm -hmm. And regarding Vedic astrology and verse, versus Western astrology, why is it that I guess and I guess because you know the whole Indian culture thing, Western Vedic astrology is given like a more of a prominence. But what like what are the differences, or what are what's better about Western or what's better about Vedic? Like, can we kind of like contrast and compare them? Yeah, well, you know, this this is kind of controversial. Like this is always I feel like this sticking point is I was well just to give you some perspective. I was um actually uh really my bhakti life got like gasoline you know dumped on the fire when I went to Mayapur. And I went to Mayapur before I had even been to my local temple because right. I you know, because I had an astrology conference I was speaking at in Calcutta. And Hari was going to be in Mayapur, which is like pretty close to Calcutta. And he's like, why don't we're studying Bhakti together privately in this yoga teacher training apprenticeship I'm doing with him privately. Why don't you just come to Mayapur and we can do like lots of Bhakti stuff there? And I was like, OK, cool. You know, and then I got there and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, you know, this is crazy this is was, in the best way possible, though. Like and I met yeah. I met I met Vaisheshika Maharaj, my guru. I mean, I, I just like it was amazing. Amazing. So then I had to go. So I went there first and then I went to the astrology conference. So I was like, man, I was, no, I was, uh, I was no good for that conference. I was like, I was just mm -hmm. wanting to like chant and go to Mangalarti. You know what I mean? I was, so I was going to the, I was cutting out of the conference early in the, early in the morning to go over to the Calcutta temple to like do the morning program. I was just like, I want to be in Mayapur. So I did not want to be at this conference. And, um, so at this conference, there was a pretty large debate about, you know, different historical astrologers, meaning academics who academics who are also astrologers debating the origins of horoscopic astrology. So horoscopic astrology means like an ascendant, 12 houses, 12 signs, the seven traditional planets, the nodes of the moon, you know, and a lot of very common craft lingo. 
that's shared between ancient Western astrology in the Hellenistic world and in India. So of course the debate is, well, where did it come from originally? Right. And there's all these people that they're just going at it, man. I'm like, you know, and my point, the place that I always was in my house, cause I'm just like, I just came from Mayapur and I'm just like sitting there like with my beads and these, you know, like kind of drifting off, like just chanting in these lectures. I'm like, this is so stupid. It comes from God. You guys get over it. Like that was kind of how I felt, you know? Right. <laughs> so, right. so I was that, and, and I don't know, maybe that's a really lazy perspective, you know, and I certainly don't mean to discredit anyone, but that's kind of where I land on it all. It's like, it's look, it's a divine science. There's some, there's some differences, but you'll find people like, um, some people will say, well, it, it, it's about the Zodiac. Is it sidereal or is it tropical Zodiac? It's like, yeah, but if you study the history of it, you know, there's early Indian astrologers using tropical, astro tropical Zodiac. Um, you know, there's early Western astrologers using sidereal. Like it's not, it's not like that was the defining issue. Yeah. Um, it, it's one thing that most people don't know who come from the ISKCON background when I've talked to them, like just the people that I've talked to randomly here or there through ISKCON when they say, because there's, we're taught at ISKCON, and I think this is understandable, we're taught that everything originally comes from the Vedas, right? So it's, it's that's it. Right. And I tend to be someone who believes that the, the again, like I don't, I don't know because I wasn't there about, you know, does truth appear in other traditions, on other planets, in other forms? In other is in other words, is Vedic wisdom not called Vedic wisdom somewhere else? Or is it I don't know about these things, but I've I've seen enough like God loving wisdom traditions in different parts of the world in my experience that I have a hard time just being like, look, we have the oldest and the best. Get in line, pal. Like I just right. I can't take that attitude. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Me neither. No, no. So, so, but, um, one thing that I will say is that in the, in the classical scholarship of astrology, one thing that's a little bit problematic for the claim that horoscopic astrology comes from India is that the earliest text that we have, um, now this is scholarly stuff, so it doesn't necessarily jive with the way, well, anyway, we'll get into that, but the earliest text we have in Indian astrology is called the Yavana Jataka. That's the earliest academically recognized historical text of the Indian horoscopic tradition. That text, the name of the text literally means the astrology of the Greeks. That's what Yavana Jataka means. Wow. So, right. So, and there's, <laughs> there, there are many terms in, or in the, in the Sanskrit that are literally just transliterations of Greek words. So in other words, um, there's no, there's no Sanskrit word for awesome. You know, so they just say awesome, right? Just something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of technical astrological concepts in Greek that have that are just literally carried over in the Greek in these early Sanskrit texts. So there is a case to be made that at least a good portion of the technical elements of ancient astrology came from the West, not from India. Now, I don't, I really honestly don't care. And there, you could, there's scholars who debate this all day long, you know, till they're red in the face. So, but that's one thing that a lot of people in ISKCON don't know necessarily who are interested in astrology or who, you know, talk about these subjects is that there's a lot of debate about where it came from. On the other hand, here's something that Western scholars are very resistant to and often sort of ignorant about, which is that the philosophical most of the philosophical doctrines that seem to have been the um underpinning of 
ancient astrology in the West appeared to have um, probably come from India. So there's a great book that was written by a scholar named Thomas McKivley. He wrote a book called The Shape of Ancient Thought. And it's talking about uh, philosophical transference from India to Greek, uh, to Greece and the Greek philosophical world and the Indian uh, like Vedic tradition. And in that book, he talks about how a lot of what informs Greek philosophy comes from Egypt and what was happening in Egypt at the time that that influence came into Greece was that Egypt was receiving a huge amount of influx from Vedic teachings, Vedic teachings that were coming in. So it's like, okay, well, maybe some technical apparatus came from the West to the East, but the philosophy seems to have come from the East to the West. You know what I mean? So, so, but anyway, regardless, I don't have a position in any of this personally, because I just don't know. And I, I, it's not my expertise or area of interest. You'll also find at this conference, there were some really great scholars who had arguments that they made about pieces of evidence that seem to exist in some of the Vedas pointing to something like a Zodiac. Then you have scholars arguing that, no, it quite clearly comes from Babylon. Like, you, you know what I mean? So it's like, so there's a lot of argumentation about that historically and which is the older tradition. And for me personally, as a Western astrologer, I remember early on asking Hari and it, it also my guru, you know, should I be learning Vedic astrology? You know, am I going to be I, off I was here? just going to ask you that. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, because that would be like really daunting for me that far into my career. You know what I mean? Like transfer over now to Western. Yeah. Vedic. Right. Yeah. I think it'd be the equivalent of like someone who had trained their whole life in competitive swimming being told you have to go to the shot put or something (laughs) like, you know, like, okay, so like quite a change. But no, my teachers were like, you know. No, just stick with what you've got. Stick with what you're doing. Make it as God-centered as possible. Try to, you know, yoke it in service. Like, mm-hmm. try to bring bhakti into it however you can and just be a good devotee. Like, that was it. And yeah. so the approach I've taken in terms of, like, just the Vedic versus Western, <clears throat> I guess, is like that. It's like, look, I think it came from God. I, I do, I tend myself, if I had to, if someone was like, look, you have to make a choice, I'd say, look, I think that the 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 ancient philosophy from the Vedas through the Upanishads, through the Puranas and the Gita. Like, I just, I haven't seen anything like that, you know, in any other place. And it seems to have made, especially after I read this book, The Shape of Ancient Thought, India seems to have had a huge influence on the philosophical and spiritual trajectory of the near Western world. And I think there's not enough credit given to that. So that's where I tend to land. But, you know, which one came first or which one is better? I don't, care so much the other thing that's interesting i'll say this to end is it is clear that prior to horoscopic astrology coming to india on a historical level that there was there there was pre-existing um lunar forms of astrology in india that you can't say were there in the west because for example the west doesn't have the equivalent of the nakshatras for a very long time not until the medieval era so it's also possible that there, I mean, there's, there's many things that are like uniquely Vedic. And then there's things that appear to have been shared or like come from one space to another. And you see that cross cultural cross uh, country sharing probably due to the expanse of trade routes. um, Some countries overtaking other countries and creating melting pots of academic and historical or um, academic and scientific spiritual research, like the 
Persian occupation of Babylon becomes this melting pot for tons of different mystics to come and gather and talk about their traditions, including Vedic philosophers. So I think it's probably something like that that was going on. Mm, very interesting. Uh, I guess more practically um, in in Western astrology, like is there the the conception of like specific gods, demigods that you could do things to appease? Like for example, in in Vedic astrology, the you know the Nava Graha Puja, you do certain pujas to each graha according to what it's prescribed to appease them or to give respect to them. Is the same right. similar things in Western? Yeah. Yeah, there's a long oh. tradition of, um, you know, hermeticism and magic uh, in the West where you're also looking at astro uh, the, astrolo the astrologer or the astrological chart with an eye for remediation, like planetary remediations, gemstones, right? you know, ceremonies, things like that. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a big deal. And it's quite controversial. There's, um, you'll find ancient uh, astrologers and philosophers debating about what the pure form of astrology is, you know, so this form of astrology where you're basically trying to jimmy rig your karma to, to, you know, come up with a solution is often looked down upon um, by, by certain astrologers, especially like Stoics, for example, they're like, no, you're like, you go to, you, you really evolve spiritually or you get eternity if you just accept what comes, right? Shouldn't do anything. And, you know, and then I think that there's somewhere in between, for example, my wife's an herbalist mm -hmm. and um, you have people who are looking to treat human beings who are sick with a, a healing intention, you know, when do I use the herb? What kind of herb to treat? What kind of planetary affliction? And, or maybe there's, so maybe there's more benign or benevolent uses of that kind of approach that are equivalent to like folk medicine, you know, so astrology, medicine, uh, working with the gods in order to deal with different kinds of things. 